Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Before we begin today's topic, I want to take up some questions that I have uh, been postponing due to lack of time. But there are three questions in the uh, previous sessions. The first one from Michael Sanders uh, is really an excellent question. Why was collectivism able to outcompete individualism intellectually? Why was collectivism, why did collectivism win in this battle with individualism in the 19th century? And now individualism is really in retreat. It's practically unknown. In fact, some woke cancel culture leftists hold that individualism is a trigger word. It's a word you can't use, which is the question I want to ask is, who is you? You mean I as an individual can't use it? You're assuming that I am an individual, which collectivism denies. No, you're just a cell in the body of society. If I were, you wouldn't have to tell me that. You don't have to tell cells in your skin to behave themselves for the greater good. All right. Uh, why did it win? It won because there was a man named Immanuel Kant. Long-time objectivists are probably tired of hearing of Kant, but boy, is this one his baby. David Hume, a philosopher who came just before Kant, raised a lot of skeptical arguments to show that reason was invalid. He also depended upon other anti-reason, anti-enlightenment philosophers that preceded him, such as Rousseau and Barclay. But he was the climax of the skeptics, of those who said, reason is invalid, man can know nothing, we cannot be certain of anything. In fact, Hume pointed out correctly, we can't even say that something is more probable than something else, because that is a claim to certainty on a higher level. So things had come to a pretty pass at around 18, uh, sorry, around uh, 1750. Kant said that reading Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumber. That's his phrase. He was dogmatically just motoring along as an uh, amateur scientist when he realized that Hume offered an opportunity. Now, that's my slant on it. Kant solidified Hume's skepticism by saying, no, no, that's not skepticism. That's a higher certainty. That's being rational. We can never know the truth, but we can know our truth. We can know the fictions that we are forced by our human nature to believe. Yes, we live in a distorted bubble. We live in the matrix. The Matrix is a Kantian, Cartesian story. 
But it's okay because we all live there, so we all share it. So the, as Ayn Rand put it, he engineered the switch from the objective to the collectively subjective. He socialized reason, he socialized logic, he socialized everything that distinguished the rational from the irrational and said, no, it's rational if it's a shared delusion. Now he didn't put it that way, right? If it's inherent in human nature, we can't damn it, he said. So our theories show that we can't know the real truth, but we can know human truth. We can know what he called the phenomenal world. We can't know noumenal reality. So he changed all the standards to make them relative to society. It's Kant, therefore, who instituted in the intellectual world what's technically called in objectivism, the social primacy of consciousness. He made the epistemological level and the metaphysical level of collectivism the going uh, default position. He did this because he had subtle, tricky arguments. So the answer is, as to why did collectivism take over, individualists were unable to answer Kant's arguments that only social standards exist. You see this today, very popular. I was just in a discussion at breakfast with a, a retired Marine pilot. And he was talking about, well, you have your truth and I have my truth and our, well, no, Americans have American truth, but other cultures have their truth because it has to be group oriented. And he doesn't know he's a collectivist. But it's the same thing, that there's no objective right and wrong. There's only cultural standards. There's no objective truth. There's only cultural standards. So the whole woke movement, the whole leftist movement, and the whole Trump movement on the other side takes off from the idea there is no rational, objective, provable position on anything. Trump is the apotheosis of that, the deification of that. Trump had, had no conception of there being such a thing as falsehood. If he said it and people bought it, he believed it himself by that you know, uh, methodology. So it's Kant. And no other philosopher since Kant has been able to name his fundamental error. Ayn Rand did. His fundamental error, the premise behind all the destruction since the Enlightenment, including the right wing today, the left wing today, the resurgence of religion, all social and intellectual evils. The premise at the root is identity is the disqualifying element in consciousness. 
because consciousness is something specific, it can't know reality. By, because it knows by certain means and not every means at once, it can't know reality. So her immortal parody of this viewpoint is man is blind because he has eyes. And that is exactly Kant's argument. A means of awareness invalidates it. You only get, oh, reality as seen by your eyes, not reality as it is. Reality is as known by your logic, not reality as it really is. But the premise of that is to know by a certain means is not to know. So the means of doing something invalidates you're doing it. It's, it's an absurd contradictory idea, but no one penetrated to that level until Ayn Rand, uh, who wrote on this in 1966 in her publication, The Objectivist Newsletter. Uh, no, sorry, then it was The Objectivist Magazine. And it was reprinted as Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, a little book, monograph, and you can get that on Amazon or anywhere. That was a long answer. So I'm going to give shorter answers, but because it was a great question, I mean, how do we understand why the world is going downhill in the humanities? It's not going downhill technologically, but in regard to people's uh, politics, ethics, philosophy, art, it's going downhill. Corey Flores asks, when discussing Jordan Peterson's fundamentals, Dr. Binswanger said, quote, order and chaos are not primaries. Order requires a standard. Nothing in nature is either orderly or disorderly. Yes, I did. She says, this confused me. I thought nature was orderly in the sense that A is A. Things are what they are, cannot act in contrast to their nature. I think you mean contradiction. The contradictions don't exist. Isn't this order? I also remember Ayn Rand on Phil Donahue stating the following. There is no such thing as a disorderly universe. Our whole concept of order comes from observing reality and reality has to be orderly because, it, because it, it's the standard of what exists. Have I misunderstood? Well, a little. You can use these terms in different ways. What Ayn Rand said on Donahue was admirably precise. And I don't know how she does it just like that, not even knowing what she's going to be asked. He, Donahue gave her the order the argument from um, order, the cosmological argue, uh, argument, cosmological argument. Look at the order in the universe. How can that be without a, an arranger? It's a little different from then another one I'm going to discuss, the argument from design, which applies to the living world and says, well, look at the human body, the human eye, the human heart. It's all so intricately arranged. That can't be by chance. Someone must have created that order, and that someone is God. 
No, the cosmological argument applies, I'm interrupting myself, aren't I? Applies to nature as such, not just to living nature. She said, there's no artificial order in the universe. And the use of the term artificial gets at what I was getting at. For things actually to be in order, there has to be some standard that distinguishes the orderly from the disorderly. For example, if all my books are lined up on the shelf, if all my ducks are in a row, if I put one hand over exactly the other hand, you can say that that's orderly by an artificial human standard. In reality, things lined up that is in metaphysical reality, apart from man, things lined up, things not lined up are equal. There's no way to evaluate one and say, well, one's orderly and the other's disorder. They just both are. For instance, here's the simplest example. The most unlikely hand at poker for five cards is 10 Jack, Queen, King, Ace of the same suit. Like 10 Jack, Queen, King, Ace of Spades. And the chances against that hand, which is, you could say, a hand in perfect order. Five cards are the highest they can be, and they're in perfect order, and they're the same suit. You can't get more orderly than that. The chances of that happening are like one in a million. But consider any hand, two of clubs, five of spades, seven of hearts, king of diamonds. Is that five? If it isn't, throw in another one. The odds of getting that hand are exactly the same as of getting a royal straight flush in spades. The royal flush is called straight is uh, redundant. A straight, a royal flush in spades. They're both, when there's only one possible way that the 52 cards can have five cards from them to get either hand. They're equally likely. They're both one in a million shots. Why do we call one orderly and the other disorderly? Well, that's a human perspective. We've defined it that way. Now, there are reasons why certain things do serve human purposes, and we call them orderly. But in nature, every outcome is equal. So that's what I mean by it's a human standard. It's not orderly or nothing that happens is orderly or disorderly from the standpoint of metaphysical reality apart from human consciousness. It's also true that you can call A is A in the law of causality a certain kind of order, but that's not a quote artificial order. That's the natural order of cause and effect. And that 
does not need explanation because you're just you're not importing a human standard into it. You're just saying whatever happens is due to a cause. And so I call that orderly. So when I shuffle the deck and do out that random hand that I mentioned before, that's orderly because it was in that sense of orderly because it resulted from the exact forces and the exact way I put the cards together. So there are no causeless things. And the argument uh, from order attempts to package, deal, and put together man-made order, which doesn't exist in nature, and causal order, which is not even deserving of the term order because it's there's no alternative to it. A is A. So you wouldn't say, boy, you know, nature's really orderly. A is always A and it's never not A. That's a backwards perspective. That's like saying, um, isn't it fantastic and needing God to explain that the sun comes up in the morning and goes down at night? That's what we call morning and night. We call it morning when the sun comes up and we call it night when the sun goes down. So, some of these things, well, anything, any occurrence that is due, no, let me back that up. Anything that exists, exists because of causality. It exists because of identity. There is no non-identity, so there is no non-order. If there is no non-order, then the concept of order is redundant. You don't need it. It doesn't add anything to say uh, the sun came up and the sun came up orderly. Or I threw a rock at a window and it broke. I threw a rock at a window and it was orderly that it broke rather than the rock turning into a bird at the last second and flying away. So you don't need a concept to distinguish what occurs in reality from fantasy, unless it's the concept truth, reality. You don't, it's not like order. This order is not a possibility. So you, it's not really right to use the term order. But if somebody is saying, the putting forward the argument from order, you could say what you're calling order is just the operation of causality. It's, it's reflects A as A, but you can't really call that order. There's no need for that concept of order. Every concept has to distinguish a thing from something else. There isn't any disorder in the sense of uncaused things or contradictions, A that isn't A, stones that turn into birds. Final question. Oh, well, I should wrap it up. I'm sure Ayn Rand would have agreed with what I said, and I agree with what she said. We're just, she's granting them the use of the term order and saying that order is uh, 
just an expression of identity. I'm saying you can't even call that order. There's no point to that concept. Yash Arya writes, entity seems to refer to solids or liquids bounded in some. No, I have to read that with different emphasis. Entity, the concept entity, seems to refer to solids or liquids bounded in solid containers. Since we can directly sense, say, wind, how can we say that only entities exist in that? Well, no one, first of all, no one said only entities exist in act. This correct statement is perception gives you entities as the ultimate metaphysical substance in the universe. Perception, to perception. Perception gives you a world of entities. You don't see walking that isn't some animals or persons walking. You don't discover, look at the, oh, there goes a to the left of. It's not any entity that's to the left of any other. There's just a relationship to the left of going by. Or sitting still, doesn't matter. So perception is an awareness of entities. Now to take up wind, Wind is a material. Air is a material. It's a motion of material. Water is also a material. So Ayn Rand discusses the category of material. And a material exists in a specific uh, chunk of it or hunk of it. And you can have air inside a balloon, just like you can have water or any gas inside a balloon. Confined or any confines, but just like you have to have water in some container, although water has enough surface tension that it, you know, if it drops free, it'll hold itself together. So there's nothing in the objectivist metaphysics that denies that there are materials. Physics will tell you that the materials are a whole bunch of smaller entities. But I hesitate to go down that path because A, philosophy can't be dependent upon the findings of physics that require specialized study beyond what perception gives you. And there's a big question whether the particles that 19th century physics, the atoms and molecules dealt with late even late 19th century, or whether there's a field that is primary. I happen to side with continuity, a field, a, a stuff spread out myself, but that's not philosophy. So the answer is wind is a material and is no principle, only entities exist, but the materials are divisible, at least on a certain level, into small little entities, little bits. So that brings us to Blaise Pascal, 1650. The uh, wager that he proposed is really interesting. It's very different from the arguments for God that we've been discussing 
in previous sessions and in the beginning of this session, argument from order. This one says it pays to believe in God. This one is a pragmatic argument. And it's very simple. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician and he worked in probability theory. And he understood that you can compare chances of values and disvalues. For instance, if I say you can join two betting games, in one of them you have a one in 10 chance of winning a million dollars. In the other, you have a 50-50 chance of winning $1. Which should you play? You should play the one that gets a one in 10 chance of winning a million dollars. The payout on it, if you repeat that kind of action over and over again, choosing a one-tenth chance of one million value uh, units of value versus um, a 50-50 chance <clears throat> at one or a two-thirds chance or a nine-tenths chance at one. The guy who takes the risk, if he does it often enough, will pretty soon win a million dollars. Even if he loses $1, let's say he'll lose $1 every time he doesn't hit the jackpot and get the million, he'll still come out way ahead. So he made the equivalent argument for God. He said, if there is a God and you believe in him, you will be rewarded with infinite bliss after death. If there is a God and you don't believe in him, you will be punished with infinite suffering after death. If there isn't a God, then this life is all there is. And by believing in God, you lose something. Maybe you think you shouldn't drink or, or have some kind of enjoyment that you could have and that's rational. If you believed, at minimum, you have to go to church and uh, lose that time that you could have been living your life more positively. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, if there isn't a God just to fill out and you don't believe in him, you get maybe some small reward because it's just the flip side of what I just said. You can go play golf on Sundays. But how do you rate whatever you think the odds are? Make it, well, there's only one in a thousand chance that there's a God. One in a thousand chance at infinite bliss versus infinite suffering way outweighs any finite amount of gain you could get from not believing in God if you're right, that there isn't any God. So the atheist, you know, maybe he gets the equivalent of a million dollars in satisfaction 
from living as an atheist. But if he's wrong, if there's a one in a thousand chance that he's wrong, he suffers forever, forever. That, that way outweighs any finite gain that he could have. So Pascal included, uh, concluded the rational thing to do is to believe in God on the chance that doing so will give you an infinite gain and avoid an infinite pain, infinite suffering, eternal. Now, I long wanted to do, we turn now to the critical section of our service. I've long wanted to do a cartoon. It would be this. St. Peter's at the pearly gates confronting Pascal. Pascal has, of course, lived as if there was a God, and there is. St. Peter is saying to Pascal, I'm sorry, Monsieur Pascal, you lose. And there are two demons just about to grab him and pull him down to eternal suffering. What does that show? It shows that you can't apply rational calculation to the irrational. What reason is there for the whole setup? What reason is there to think that if there is a God, which you can't even define or explain or communicate. If there is this something that's going to give you eternal bliss or eternal suffering, what reason is there to think that it works by belief, grants you the, the positive, and disbelief grants you the negative, imposes the negative? If you're not bringing in reason, why not say atheists will go to heaven and have pizza all the time and believers, God will punish them for believing. <clears throat> Why is that less probable than the other? Well, nobody believes that. Right. Right. So the reason why <clears throat> you, Pascal, think that believing and going to church is going to get you in heaven is the wonderful evidence that all traditional religions believe that. Well, everybody knows that God wants you to believe in him. They do? How? So the whole argument assumes not just that there's a supreme being, not just that there's a supreme being who assigns you to eternal bliss or eternal damnation, <clears throat> but the specific kind of supreme being that's explained in, you know, explained, that's laid out in the Bible, 
the traditional Western Christian Bible. For instance, my understanding of the Hindu religion is that it doesn't have any such idea as if you flatter God and pray to him and go to church and believe in him, he will reward you with eternal life. I don't know that firsthand, but I was told that by an Indian uh, native, native of India. So you can't have your reason and eat it too. You can't say, well, there's no reason to believe in God, but if there is one, he would reward you for believing in him. Really? Why? Well, come on. So the whole argument collapses. You see, there's nothing to it. It's, it's not like you want to criticize the mathematics. You want to criticize the assumptions, the assumption that that for which there's no rational evidence that has just been made up can then be calculated as to what is the rational way to deal with it. And that's why I have, you know, in my cartoon, Pascal is being sent to the inferno just to show you the complete negation is no more rational or irrational is let me rephrase is just as irrational just as groundless as arbitrary as made up as the story that he's accepting and without that story the whole thing falls okay we are um over time here, and uh, there are a couple of other arguments for God that are worth spending much less time on, worth spending time on, but much less, and maybe I'll do them next time. Thank you for attending. Thank you for your super chat questions, and I'll see you next Monday.